Well, as you've already heard, we are working through the letter to the Philippians this summer for our summer sermon series. And this morning, we find ourselves um, finishing up chapter 2. So we are going to look at verses 19 through 30 of Philippians chapter 2. Uh, you're welcome to use one of the Bibles and the Purex in front of you, but the passage is also printed uh, in the worship guide so you can easily follow along there. The theme or title of this series is Partners in the Gospel. We've been looking at Paul's unique and special relationship with this church in Philippi, and not only his relationship to the Christians in Philippi, but this letter draws out the relationships of the Christians in Philippi with one another. And this theme of being partners in the gospel, being unified in Christ, we, we see it keep coming up throughout this letter, and it's going to be the case again in the section that we're looking at this morning. Real quick recap for those of you who are just stepping in to the series. This letter was written by the Apostle Paul, uh, probably around 62 AD. He wrote from being under house arrest in Rome, not knowing whether he would eventually be released or executed. And so he writes to the Philippians to encourage them. The Philippians had been very much encouragers of Paul in his ministry. One of the primary purposes of Paul writing this letter was basically to say thank you for the gift of, of support that they had sent him. Let me read for us um, these verses, 19 through 24, from chapter 2. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I've thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, you are here in our midst. We pray that you would do your work of applying the gospel, the good news of Jesus, this word, this particular text, to our very lives. Transform our minds and our hearts that we might be captivated by Jesus' death on our behalf and that we might be compelled to imitate his pattern in the world and in our church family to Laid, be willing to lay down our lives in service to one another. You are able to accomplish this in our lives for our good 
and your glory. So we look forward to you doing that. In Jesus' name, amen. Robert Mounts uh, was a former uh, college president and commentator on the Bible. Several years ago, uh, maybe five, six, seven years ago, a short film was made um, that captured him caring for his wife, Mary. Now, it's possible that you've heard me uh, tell this story before. Um, I definitely have used it several times in weddings that I have done. Um, But you see, the situation with Robert Mounts' wife, Mary, was that she suffered from an extended illness. She was confined to a wheelchair, and her husband, Robert, was her primary caregiver. He spent most of his days with her, reading to her, playing the piano for her, driving uh, her places, and even feeding her. As you can imagine, uh, it's a moving snapshot. You can Google this and watch it for yourself. But there was something that Dr. Mount said um, in this, this brief video snapshot that stuck with me. Obviously, it stuck with me because I keep referring back to it. And he said this, the best life is a life that's invested in someone else. I think we actually have a slide for this um, that will come up on the screen to help you see it. It's not a life that's invested in yourself. And that's what love is. Placing the welfare of the other ahead of your own. This basically is a summary of the letter to the Philippians. We see it everywhere in this letter. It comes to us in this, this, uh, under this umbrella, this context of partners in the gospel. But how are partners in the gospel to live together? Well, the best life is a life that's invested in someone else. More precisely, this is a life that flows from the life of Christ. You see, as disciples of Jesus, if we have come to trust Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we are in relationship with him, his life flows to us. And what that means is that increasingly, our lives begin to look more like his life we begin increasingly to take on his posture, his frame of mind. In fact, uh, earlier in this very chapter, Paul said this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, all right, here's the, the frame of mind of Jesus. You too have this frame of mind. May this become yours increasingly. And then he goes on in those powerful verses in the middle of chapter 2 to describe, basically, the life of Jesus, a life of service even to the point of death. You heard me read this passage for us, and I wonder if you thought it was boring. It's okay to admit that, if that was true. It is kind of boring, especially coming out of where we've been so far in Philippians, right? I mean, we have uh, encountered some very deep and rich theology, particularly that hymn or poem in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, um, that unpacks, like we said, the life of Christ was quite beautiful. It was powerful. And now we come to this. It's a travelogue. It's a travel itinerary. 
Why in the world, in the middle of this letter, is Paul taking a pause, taking a break to update us on travel schedules with names like Epaphroditus that I will be really impressed if each time I say that name throughout this sermon, I don't stumble my words. Why in the middle of this letter do we have this travelogue, especially considering that usually it was the case that such a thing would actually be provided for us at the end of the letter. But here we have it, in the middle of this letter, surrounded by powerful, rich, beautiful theology. Well, let's look at these two guys that we hear of in these verses, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Let's begin with Timothy. Paul says in verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. This actually is not the first mention of Timothy in this letter. Go ahead real quick, skim um, the letter that has come before this section. Keep skimming, keep skimming, all the way back up to the very first few words of the letter. Notice how Paul begins this letter. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Paul and Timothy were tight. Paul was Timothy's mentor. They met on Paul's second missionary journey. And from that point on, they developed a very close friendship. Paul was Timothy's mentor. Um, He was like a father in the faith to to, um, Timothy. Paul says as much in verse 22. He says, You know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. So this very letter came from Paul and Timothy. They were together. They were united. And so Paul's plan is to send Timothy to the Philippians. He plans to send him as soon as um, he gets a sense of what's going to happen with himself. Because remember Paul's circumstances. He's under house arrest, not knowing whether he would be released or executed. He's awaiting trial. And so it's as though he's saying... All right, I'm going to send Timothy to you, but I can't yet because I'm in a really hard spot. And Timothy is, he's my right-hand man. I need him here with me. But I hope as soon as possible to be able to send him to you. Not only that, I hope to be able to see, to come, to, to come see you soon as well. Paul would send Timothy to get a report on how the Philippians were doing. He wanted to check in on them. He wanted to send Timothy to work and live among them for a period of time. No one was closer to Paul than Timothy. Traveled with him. Paul gave him special assignments, and we're getting a sense of that even in in this uh, passage, right? That he would eventually, his heart was to send Timothy to this church that Paul deeply loved. What is Paul ultimately doing when it comes to Timothy in the eyes of the Philippian church? He's holding Timothy up as someone to look up to and imitate. Raises a question for us. At least it raised a question for me um, this week as I was um, wrestling with this text. Who are the people that influence us in our lives? Who are those that we look up to, that we want to be like, that we want to imitate? Now, 
there are plenty of options out there, right? Overwhelmingly so. Everywhere we turn, um, somebody is held out to us as someone to imitate, whether it be through advertising, whether it be um, wherever you turn, we're constantly bombarded and challenged with, oh, I want to be like that. I want to do that like this person does that. There are plentiful options. Paul holds up a guy like Timothy. How? Why? There's nothing that spectacular about Timothy. This is going to be the same with Epaphroditus. I'm like three, four for four now on Epaphroditus. Five for five. These are ordinary guys with ordinary names. Well, Epaphroditus isn't ordinary for us, but these are just ordinary guys living their mundane, normal lives. Why would Paul hold up someone like Timothy? And if you think to yourself, well, hold up here. These guys are obviously spectacular. I mean, the apostle Paul is referencing them, holding them up as examples. I mean, wasn't Timothy a pastor, a church planner? Yes, he was. But read through the letters to Timothy sometime. It would provide context and insight. In those letters, we get the sense that Timothy was a little bit reserved. And Paul encourages him to preach the gospel boldly. So maybe there was some fear and timidity on Timothy's part. When you look at the whole scope of this, I don't think that there was anything extraordinary or spectacular about Timothy. He was simply faithful. He knew Jesus and was continuing to get to know Jesus. And through that process, guess what was happening? He was becoming more like Jesus. And so Paul says, look at Timothy. He's worthy of imitation. Of all the things that Paul could say about Timothy... You know, it's possible he could have said he's really eloquent in his speaking ability, or he is this, that, or the other thing. Look at these public skills, these public gifts that he has. But what does he commend more than anything? He will genuinely care for you. That's why he wants to send Timothy to the Philippians. Yes, Timothy, or Paul is in a tight spot, a hard spot. He needs Timothy with him in the present, but Paul, like we, like we saw, wants to eventually send Timothy to the Philippians. He's not afraid to send his best. And he says that I can send him to you with full confidence because he genuinely will care for you and your welfare. Of all the things that he could say, that's what he highlights about Timothy. You see, what we start to discover um, in this text, not only in this text, we've been encountering it all along so far, is this reality that the interests of others is the interest of Jesus. The interests of others is the interests of Jesus. And so Paul can commend Timothy and hold him up as an example for the Philippians because he cares more about the interests of the Philippians and Paul and others than he does for his own. And Paul sees it. He says, guess who that reminds me of? Jesus. And when somebody is caring more for others, when somebody uh, is saying, your interests are more important than my own, that person is concerned with the interests of Jesus. What about Epaphroditus? Now, Timothy 
as I referred to, at least there are a couple letters written to him later in the New Testament. Epaphroditus has no other mention. This guy just appears out of nowhere, and then he just fades away just as suddenly. Verse 25, Paul says, I've thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. You see, Epaphroditus is from Philippi. And what, was, what happened here was that the Philippians sent Epaphroditus to Paul to take to him a gift of support that they were giving Paul. They had discovered uh, that Paul was in prison and their heart went out with him that he was under house arrest. And so Epaphroditus goes on their behalf to take this gift to Paul. And along the way, what happens? We read that he got sick. Not just a little bit sick, but sick to the point of death. Fortunately, God spared his life. And Paul um, cares so much about Epaphroditus that Paul says that um, not only did God have mercy on Epaphroditus by preserving his life, he had mercy on me saving me from sorrow upon sorrow. In other words, Paul already finds himself under house arrest, not knowing whether he's going to be executed. And he's saying that God had mercy on him by preserving the life of a deep friend. He calls him a brother, a fellow soldier, your messenger and minister to my need. Now, think about something. Uh, commentators, all, most of all of the ones I read, pointed this out. Why is Paul holding up Epaphroditus? It's possible that when Epaphroditus ultimately returned, maybe there would be a little bit of embarrassment because he was sent. Uh, maybe he went courageously to Paul, and then he gets sick along the way. Um, things don't work out the way that um, it was envisioned, and so maybe he comes back with a level of embarrassment, um, that he was maybe going to be the strong one to deliver this gift, and yet he almost dies along the way. And it's beautiful to think that Paul is possibly honoring Epaphroditus' dignity here. Epaphroditus should not be embarrassed. He was willing to uh, give his life, essentially, in order to give this gift to me on your behalf, receive him back, And may he be someone that you look up to and imitate in your life as well. Now, this this word, um, looking at down at verse, um, indeed, he was ill near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. That word, um, when it says that he had been distressed, and when he, um, what word am I looking for? Near to death, that's the phrase. It literally translates as he was willing to gamble his life away for the purpose of Jesus and your benefit. This is the kind of person that Epaphroditus was. He was not primarily concerned with his own interests, but he cared about the interests of others more than his own. And this language that that Paul uses is intentionally similar to that grand hymn or poem in Philippians uh, 2, 5 through 11. Remember how it it talked about that that Jesus um, took on human flesh and 
um, came in the form of man and became obedient um, to the point of death, even death on a cross. And in talking about Epaphroditus, Paul says that he was ill near to death. This language, um, some of the exact same words are used. Uh, He's wanting to draw out the similarities between the pattern of Christ and the pattern of Epaphroditus here. He faced danger on this journey. It was a journey that did not have his interests in mind, right? It was about the Philippians, and it was about Paul. It was about others. Why would Paul hold up Epaphrodites as an example? You're not going to find anything else about him in the whole of the Bible. He's just a guy. Literally, he's just a guy. He's just a person. He's a person like you and me. But Paul can hold him up as an example because the life of Christ flowed through the life of Epaphrodites. Paul is basically saying that as I look at Epaphrodite's life, as I look at how he lives, I I see glimpses of Jesus. It illustrates, it fleshes out the gospel for me. It helps the gospel become more real to me. And look at how he ends uh, by talking in verse 30. Risking his life, actually that was where the gamble word came in, sorry. That That phrase, risking his life, it literally translates, was willing to gamble his life away to complete what was lacking in your service to me. What was lacking? Their physical presence. Epaphrodites did for them what they could not do for themselves in delivering the gift to Paul. And in doing so, Paul is saying, this is a wonderful illustration of the gospel. Epaphrodites has put flesh to the gospel. All right, let's return to our question. Why is there this travel log in the middle of the letter? Why this itinerary schedule? Why not at the end of the letter where it would maybe make more sense? You know, he gets to the end and he says, okay, now in conclusion, um, I want to send Timothy to you as soon as possible. And by the way, yes, as you heard, Epaphrodite's got sick, but He's recovering, and I'm going to send him back to you soon. I mean, that would be a fitting way to conclude the letter. We have it in the middle, in the midst of all of this grand theology surrounding it, to the point that we might read it and say, this is really boring, this is really mundane, and way too ordinary. Aha, but you're on to it. That is why this travelogue is included where it is. All too ordinary. Where do we live our lives? It's in the ordinary, isn't it? I mean, very few things in life feel extraordinary in the moment. Yes, there are certain moments, certain times in life where it's one of those um, moments where in the moment you, you feel like you're reaching out, you're connecting with something transcendent, right? That's bigger than you are. And in that moment, you know you'll never forget that moment. But Those moments are few and far between. Most of life is lived in very ordinary moments, mundane moments, hard moments, stressful moments, anxious moments. There's bills to pay. There's children to raise. There's a marriage to work out. There's the spouse that you long for that you don't have. I could keep going. 
You know, we, we could spend hours listing, all right, what are all the ordinary things of life? It's for that reason that this travel log is included where it is. It's because in those moments, that's where the gospel is to be fleshed out. Here's my problem in life. When I think about fleshing out the gospel, all too often it's moments like this. I'm going to preach a great sermon or, you know, something like that. But what about when uh, a neighbor inconveniences me or somebody in my church family and asks for something or has a need and it's like, oh, not right now. Those mo- I mean, I preach once every Sunday, not every Sunday out of the year. So those moments are few and far between. Um, those other moments take up almost all of my life. And if I'm not fleshing out the gospel in those moments, where in the world is the gospel being fleshed out? Thank goodness that Paul includes this. Because we could read a passage like Philippians 2, 5 through 11, And we can take in all of its truth and all of its beauty, but it can be distant from us. It can be a little bit abstract. Yes, Jesus did that for me. But Paul says, no, you're not going to leave it there. Let's talk about what this looks like for you to live in response to what Jesus did for you. What does it look like for your character to actually be formed? And our character is formed and developed and strengthened in the ordinary hard moments of life. Day after day, getting up in the morning and doing all of the things that you don't want to do. Some of those things you actually are dreading on that particular day. Those are the places where the gospel is to be fleshed out. Paul takes Philippians 2, 5 through 11 and applies it to real life here. He's saying, remember, he, he, back um, in the beginning of chapter 2, he said, have the mind of Christ among you. Now he's saying, all right, let me illustrate this for you. Let me talk about two of my friends. Um, let me give you a picture of how they have the mind of Christ, how Jesus' frame of mind is increasingly becoming their frame of mind. Look at how they live. They're not perfect. They don't have it all together. But increasingly, they are becoming more Christ-like in how they live. How is this possible? Because, look, most of you are probably with me right now. That, yes, I hear what you're saying. It's true. And and I feel an amount of relief that, uh, you know, the moments that bring me close to God are not relegated to the extraordinary moments happens in the everyday stuff of life. But how? Because when I walk out of this building, when I get home, that issue is going to come up again. That really hard thing for me right now. And as I sit here now, yeah, I can imagine fleshing out the gospel, but you know what? I'm probably not going to because it's way too hard. What do we do? Here's what we do. We root ourselves We sink ourselves. We anchor ourselves in these verses. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Consider the extent to which Jesus went to reach you. Live here. Live in this reality of who Jesus is and the extent to which he went to reach you and find you and save you. This is not just something for us to remember on Sunday mornings when we gather. It's not just something for us to rehearse together in a community group setting. This is life for us. Live in it. Remind yourself of it. Because the only way that Christ's life is going to flow through your life is if you are actually connected to and rooted in the very life of Christ. So how do you do this? You live in the gospel. Now, I am not saying, and then it will be easy. In fact, it will actually get harder, a lot harder. Because when you start living in the gospel, there are all kinds of other forces, spiritual warfare that are going on that are seeking to take you out. So it will actually get harder. So don't hear me saying that, and then it will get easier. It won't. But the gospel will be your lifeline. It'll be your anchor. It'll be what sustains you. It will be what you keep coming back to time and time again. Imitate the pattern of Christ. That's the ongoing theme here. And notice these relationships. It gives us insight into the early church. Paul's close relationship to Timothy and Epaphrodites. Paul's already touched on the unity among the Philippians. Now, we're not given the exact nature of it, but it's most likely the case since he's stressing unity so much in the letter that there are areas of disunity. But by and large, unlike some of the other churches that Paul wrote to, this church seems to be doing fairly well. And so there are these intimate relationships that Paul is touching on in these verses his closeness to Timothy, to Epaphrodites, what's going on in the church in Philippi, Timothy and Epaphrodites' love of the Philippians. Partnership in the gospel. How do we live as partners in the gospel? The answer is the same answer. By living in the gospel. You know what it's like to try to live as partners in anything, right? Let alone the gospel. And within a church, a church family like ours, um, especially when you come into a church, you know, it, it can be easy to have this idealistic perception. Everybody has it all together, and this is going to be a grand thing. We're going to work together to make Jesus known. And then you actually start to get to know people. And then, because of your interactions with those people, it brings out all the stuff in you, and you actually start to get to know who you are. And then the temptation is either I'm out or I'm going to remain at a distance because let's be, this is what it comes down to. It's too hard. That's what it comes down to. You can sugarcoat it. We can romanticize it. We can say we're busy. But the answer is we just say it's too hard. So I'm not going to try anymore. 
And when that is our frame of mind, which is contrary and in opposition to the mind of Christ, we are missing out on countless opportunities to experience the life of Jesus in our own lives. Because when we say it's too hard, what are we also saying? Jesus is not enough to sustain me and empower me in it. And so to live as partners in the gospel, we have to be rooted in the gospel. We're partners in what? It's the gospel. So let's be rooted in the very thing that we're partnering around and in. And this you know, can't be stressed enough. And this is why, again, I, I, I so appreciate Paul using ordinary people, real names, because it is a reminder for us that this is where life, even in community, gets lived out. Most of the moments in community are so mundane, so routine. Inviting people into your home, maybe for community group, and it's like, I don't really feel like it tonight. Um, I'm going to have to probably clean up food off the floor when everyone leaves. Um, community group ends. I just didn't really feel it tonight. The discussion stunk. Um, what, and what was the deal with that comment that that person made? Was that directed to me? You, all of this stuff. I didn't have community group. Wait, I did have community group this past week, so maybe I am talking about myself. I'm not, wasn't even planning on um, talking about that. What are we talking about? Um, life in community. Oh, these mundane, ordinary things that are hard. It pains me to say it, but this is where the gospel gets fleshed out. And this is my danger as I, I think of myself as a visionary. And when I think about community groups, it's like they're doing what they're supposed to do, and it's grand, it's great. People are coming to know Jesus. People are growing in Jesus. And I, I pray that that happens, but most of community group life is not extraordinary like that. It's very ordinary, mundane, and difficult. Life is hard. Relationships are difficult. This is where the gospel gets fleshed out. How do we measure our spiritual growth? This is, I want to end with this. How do we measure our spiritual growth? First, just let that question sit with you. When you hear a question like that, and it's probably not the first time you've heard a question like that or contemplated a question like that, what do you tend to answer? What kind of things do you typically think of in response to that question? You know, maybe you're reading your Bible more. When I'm reading my Bible more, that's a sign that I'm growing spiritually. When I'm praying more and I'm more regular in Sunday worship. I mean, all of those things are certainly true. But if all of those things are happening, there's something deeper, something bigger that we can measure, and it's this. The interests of others are becoming more important than our own interests. This is how we, according to Philippians, this is how we measure our spiritual progress, our spiritual growth. Are the interests of others increasingly becoming more important than my own interests? Am I more and more willing to die to myself? Am I willing to lay down my life? Am I willing to be inconvenienced 
discomforted for the sake of others. That's how we measure our spiritual growth. Praying, reading the Bible fits all into that because how do we access the life of Christ? How does that life of Christ flow through us? It's through those means. But the end product, the end game will be that we start to look more like Jesus. Now, we've talked about earlier in this series, Jesus is unique. There's no one like Jesus. We'll never um, be anyone like Jesus as the Son of God. And so I've been careful to, to use this language of it's not so much imitating Jesus, it's imitating his pattern. And that's why Paul so helpfully uses words like, have the mind of Christ, have the posture of Christ, imitate his pattern of life, which is a pattern of downward mobility, which is a pattern of service to others, which is a pattern of investing in others more than ourselves. And so let's come back to that quote from Robert Mounts. The best life is a life that's invested in someone else. It's not a life that's invested in yourself, and that's what love is, placing the welfare of the other ahead of your own. This is what Jesus did for you, and Paul is highlighting two people as those who are seeking who are imitating this pattern that we saw in Jesus. You may be here this morning, and you don't really grasp the gospel. Maybe you would say, yeah, I'm not a Christian, or I'm not exactly sure where I am. Maybe I'm somewhere in that process. I'm just not exact, exactly sure. Well, let's make it simple. The essence of the Christian faith is that the God of the universe went to a great extent to reach you. He took on human form in the person of Jesus and was willing to become obedient even to the point of death on a cross in order to pay the penalty for your rebellion against God. That is the entry point into life by not simply cognitively believing that, but, but trusting that. And basically saying, as we said a few weeks ago, sacrificial love is at the heart of the universe because it's rooted in the very character of God. If you want to live deeply, if you want to live beautifully, if you want to live the life that you were meant to live, it's a life that's invested in others. Let's pray. Jesus, help us. Root us deeply in what you've done for us. We praise you and we thank you for giving your life for us, for placing your own interests, placing our interests above your own. I pray that you would bring us to a point where we really grasp that good news and that it's real to us. And then I pray that that good news would sink deeply into our lives so that your life would flow through us and that we might imitate your pattern. Help us to actually believe that the best life is a life invested in others, 
Give us that frame of mind. Give us that posture. And when it's hard, bring us back to you. Remind us of what you've done for us. We pray in your name. Amen.